Have you ever tried to imagine the future? Think about what it's going to be like someday. I love looking back at movies from the past that try to predict the future. You know, like the movie Back to the Future, where supposedly by now we should have flying cars and hoverboards. And I mean real hoverboards, not those rolling things that catch on fire. But they got it wrong. And and one of the things that cracks me up the most is that they thought back in the mid-80s that the future would be fax machines in every room. Isn't that funny? Fax machines are obsolete practically. Maybe, Maybe you, have you ever tried to imagine your future? Maybe you, when you were a child, you had these dreams for what life would be like as an adult. Maybe... Uh, when you were in college, you had these hopes and these dreams for your future. Maybe when you were first married, you had these expectations for what your life would someday be. I know that 16 years ago for me, I never would have imagined that I'd be standing here as, with the privilege and the honor of serving as your lead pastor. That was a future that I didn't envision. What about your future? How have you envisioned your life today? Is it better than you hoped? Or is there maybe some regret or some disappointment? Maybe things didn't work out quite the way you thought they would. Now imagine being a citizen of ancient Jerusalem. Your city is under siege by the most fearsome empire the world had ever seen at that time, the Babylonians. And things aren't quite working out the way the people of Israel had hoped. They are suffering the judgment that God's prophets had warned them about. But they continued to worship idols and to treat each other unjustly and to engage in all kinds of immorality. And so they literally had no one to blame but themselves. But those same prophets that warned them also gave them hope. Yes, God's judgment would come, but He would not destroy them entirely. There would be a remnant of that covenant community that would survive, that would thrive. God would still honor His ancient promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David. The Lord's anointed one, the Messiah, would someday come. He would be Israel's true king, better even than King David. Listen again and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 11. This was our Old Testament reading, and I want to read those verses plus a few extra. Listen again to this description from Isaiah of the coming king, of this Messiah, of this future day of deliverance. Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and his roots, a branch, will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but his righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And skip down to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest 
will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Earlier, in Isaiah chapter 9, he predicts this Messiah coming as a child born to Israel. He says the Son will be given for God's people and He will be a wonderful Counselor. He will be the mighty God, the revelation of the everlasting Father. He will be the Prince of all peace. And His rule and His reign will ever grow and increase. It will never decrease. It will never end. He will reign on the throne of David with everlasting justice and righteousness. What a hope! What a hope! Can you just picture in your mind, based on these words, the kind of future Isaiah's audience imagined? This was more than a mere daydream. It was a desperate longing for deliverance, for better days, for sorrow and pain to pass away, for a new beginning and a second chance. And that new beginning came. God did give Israel a second chance. Deliverance from sin and sorrow and even death did come. But as with so many of our past attempts to imagine the future, it didn't quite look like they thought it would. You know, throughout the centuries, there were different ideas about this coming day of the Lord, this day when the Messiah would bring deliverance and He would restore the kingdom to Israel and rule the nations with justice and righteousness. But here on the eve of Jesus' birth, once again, let's look at what these anticipations and these expectations were. In the early days of the first century, people had different ideas about how the Messiah would come. And these different ideas kind of coalesced into these different factions in Jewish society. But these ideas that they had weren't just first century ideas. People today embrace the same false hopes that Israel had embraced. And I just want us to look at a few of those this morning. The first false hope is hope in self-righteousness. Hope in self-righteousness. The Pharisees, you see... They were fair, you see. I'm sorry, I just had to... Unlike the Sadducees who were sad, you see. The Pharisees were looking for a Messiah who would be like the Old Testament prophets. They, They were looking for someone who would come with these strong words of judgment and rebuke against the people, you know, preaching hellfire and brimstone and pointing out their sins and driving people back to Torah-centered living. This is why the Pharisees in Jesus' day were so hard on tax collectors and prostitutes and and all these other well-known sinners because the Pharisees believed the mere presence of these people in Jewish society was keeping the Messiah from coming. These sinners, they believed, were surely the reason why God continued to punish Israel under Roman occupation. So if the people could just repent and return to keeping the law of Moses then maybe the Messiah would come and drive out Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. This was their hope. The Pharisees placed their hope 
in people's ability to keep the law. Jesus often rebuked the Pharisees for this, for placing their faith in the law instead of in Him. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says this to them, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. People today can be the same way. They can mistakenly place their hope in the Bible and in their interpretation of the Bible rather than placing their hope in the Jesus the Bible reveals. They think that they are good to go because they read the Bible. Maybe even they've studied the Bible. Maybe even they've memorized parts of the Bible. And they believe they are good people because they try to live by the Bible. But Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He says, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. No one's perfect. Is there anyone in here who can honestly say they've kept everything written in the, in the Bible? Okay, good. Nobody's raised their hand because if you did, you're a liar and that means you've broken one of the commands, right? No one can keep all the commands. If you are hoping in your ability to live out what the Bible teaches perfectly, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That is a false hope and more than just a little arrogant. The purpose of the law, all the commands of Scripture, isn't to make us perfect, but to illustrate just how sinful and imperfect we are. The law is there to show us how desperately we need a Savior. Look with me in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, or you can just look on the screen. Paul goes on in that same chapter we read from a second ago to say, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed, capital S, he's talking about Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So don't put your hope in self-righteous rule-keeping. Put your hope in the grace of God. Put your hope in the righteousness of Christ. The second false hope we see in Jesus' day was a hope in institutions. The second major religious group in Jesus' day were the Sadducees. While the Pharisees focused on the moral commands of the law of Moses, the Sadducees focused on the ritualistic commands, especially those involving the temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood. Salvation for the Sadducees wasn't found in keeping the rules, but in observing the rituals. 
So rather than looking for the prophetic Messiah of the Pharisees, the Sadducees were looking for a priestly Messiah. They believed that this Messiah would only come if temple worship was kept pure and undefiled, which meant they had to keep Gentiles and unclean people and especially the Roman government off the Temple Mount. They couldn't have the Romans interfering with their temple worship. And keeping Rome out of their religious affairs meant keeping the peace with Rome at any cost. So if you follow the logic of the Sadducees, you can understand how they allied themselves with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the political elite of Jerusalem. They followed after King Herod, who wasn't even really a Jew. He was the puppet king that Rome put in. So the Herodians, the Sadducees, they all partnered together, and they said, you know what, we, just, we don't want to rock the boat. We want to appease Rome. We want to just, just keep the status quo. And so eventually, the temple... Rituals became devoid of any kind of meaning. They were little more than just tools to placate the people. They figured if we can just keep everybody focused on sacrifices and rituals, then maybe they won't get all tied up in politics and lead some kind of a, a futile rebellion against Rome. And so the Sadducees became the religious establishment of the rich and powerful. Sadly, there are churches and denominations today that have become just as powerless and lifeless and pointless because they have gone out of their way to appease the cultural elites. They don't want to offend anyone with politically correct, incorrect ideas from some ancient book. And so they encourage us to just go along with the culture so we can get along with the culture. They focus on twisted ideologies that sound good, I mean, how does diversity and equality not sound great? How do words like welcoming and affirming not sound so positive? But they've redefined and twisted those phrases into meanings that are devoid of any kind of biblical or Christian doctrine. Jesus challenged the status quo. Jesus wasn't afraid to rock the boat. He wasn't intimidated by the cultural and religious institutions of his day. He was a prophetic Messiah who called the rich and powerful to account for their injustice and their oppression and their immorality. Jesus came to bring a kingdom not of this world, one that wouldn't be built on power grabs and political maneuvers, but by laying down your life for your enemies. We must not put our hope in the religious and cultural institutions of our day. Washington politics won't fix the problem of sin. You can't legislate sin out of the human heart. Hollywood entertainment will not give you a story worth living for. And Wall Street finances will never give you security. Neither will church religiousness give you peace or forgiveness or purpose. If you hope in any of these, you will be disappointed. And the third false hope of Jesus' day was a hope in strength. And the third key group in the first century were called the Zealots. Now the Zealots believed that the Messiah was waiting for them to stop being passive, to work up some courage and get out there and do something. They had sort of that God helps those who help themselves mentality. And if they would just be courageous and rise up and rebel against Rome, then that warrior Messiah would come and lead the final charge to take Israel back from Rome. 
So the zealots, they didn't put any hope in, in self-righteous rule following or in ritualistic religion or in cultural appeasement. No, their hope was in their own rugged strength and their fight for freedom. Today we hear a lot about so-called culture wars and the news media loves to drum that up around Christmas time especially. The war on Christmas, we hear about that. Now don't get me wrong, we do live in a clash of cultures. We do live in the midst of a war of worldviews. But guess what? We always have been. Since the Garden of Eden, it's called the darkness versus the light. It's called wickedness versus righteousness. It's called Satan versus God. But Jesus didn't come wielding a sword to bring peace through military conquest. He came to die at the hands of the military on a Roman cross. And so we can't advance the kingdom of God by waging a culture war in our own strength and wisdom. Nor can we overcome the sinful tendencies of the human heart through self-help techniques or New Year's resolutions. If your hope is in your own willpower, wisdom, or warring against the culture, once again, you'll be disappointed. The future seldom happens the way we think it will. Our expectations are either too little or they're too great. Our perspective is skewed. We are sinful, fallible, fallen, finite people. But the Bible's promises are true. And they are clearer than you think if we just trust in them. Jesus didn't come to bring a military revolution against Rome. He did one better than that. Paul said he came to disarm the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus didn't come to offer sacrifices hidden behind a veil in the holiest of holies. He came to be the final sacrifice for sin and to tear that veil from top to bottom. Hebrews 9.12 says he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. No more do we have to approach God through a priest and a temple. He is our priest and together we are the temple of God. Jesus didn't come to purge the world of sinners or to teach them to earn God's favor by perfectly keeping the law. He came to fulfill the law and to write a new law on our hearts, the law of love. He opened door. He opened wide the door to all sinners and said, whosoever will may come. Jesus is the prophet, revealing to us the heart of the Father, calling us to die to ourselves and follow Him by living in the ways of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the priest who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb slain from the foundations of the world that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus is the King who ushered His kingdom into the hearts of His people. And now we, the bride of Christ, are the ones waiting for His return to bring complete victory, restoration, and hope to this broken, fallen, and rebellious world. So this Advent season, when you see the evergreen trees and the white lights, may they remind you of the pure and unselfish love of God whose only Son 
is our only source of hope. May the stories, symbols, and lights of Christmas remind us of the grace and love of God and the hope of salvation that we find in Him. The Christmas that Israel hoped for, the Christmas that they thought would be, turned out different because it was far better than anything they could have ever imagined. Whatever your hopes, whatever your fears, whatever your situation is today, bring them to Jesus. Because while hope in self-righteousness and institutions and our own strength will disappoint, hope in Jesus Christ never disappoints. Amen? Whenever we hear a word from God, He always expects a response from us. How would God have you respond this morning? Do you need to put your hope in Jesus Christ for salvation today? Do you need to come and unite with this church family? Do you need to come today at this altar and just pray and say, God, forgive me for putting too much hope, too much account in myself and other things, and not enough in Jesus. Whatever God has spoken to you, let's stand and sing. You respond.